Well, somewhere in my childhood, I learned a disappointing truth. I'd been led to believe that if you want the quintessential apple, there's only one apple to get. Red delicious. (laughs) So perfectly red. The apple that you see on the teacher's desk. Even the name itself, Red Delicious, indicates that when you take a bite, you will be transported into raptures of flavor. (laughs) So at some point, acquiring a Red Delicious apple and taking a a bite, I quickly realized that I had been deceived. The apple was so bland, it was disgusting. (laughs) Uh, The Red Delicious is all show. I think many of you know that. In fact, I think James was telling me it was bread for show, really, uh, to look very nice on the outside, to be all show, but then to have no substance. Well, similarly, Jesus in Matthew is addressing an evil generation that is all show and no substance. Last week, he was in the temple, and he overturned tables and chairs and was rebuking not only sellers, but buyers, a whole uh, generation, not only the leadership, but the worshipers themselves, because what we saw last week is uh, the temple had corrupt worship, manipulative worship. And really, manipulative worship, corrupt worship stems from this. It stems from divided loyalty. You see, worship is all about God. It's all about being directed towards God and delighting in him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if your worship is corrupt, if it is broken, it is because you have divided loyalty. There's very easy when you have divided loyalty to do the external actions of worship, but to be all show and no substance, like that red delicious apple or like another fruit we are going to see this morning. And really, that it does the thought that we saw last week, uh, that we saw with Jesus in the temple, that thought progression really carries on into this section that we look at today with Jesus and the fig tree. So the big idea this morning is this. The big idea this morning is this. Faith Bible Church. Now, I'll pause for just a second. When I give you a big idea each morning, um, uh, on a Sunday morning, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm not only telling you the idea for the passage. That, of course, is where we start. Uh, what did Matthew have for his original audience? But then the way God uses Scripture is that he, we then start there, and we look for the principles there, and then we apply them to us and to our day. And so what you will see this morning, Jesus is going to address divided loyalties, and he's going to talk about a generation of divided loyalties in Israel. Well, we're not Israel. We are the church. So what does that look like for us? And we are a local church. But I believe where Matthew was going, where Jesus is going this morning, translates over for us to this big idea. For all of us, corporately, collectively, Faith Bible Church. Have a full, faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, lest Jesus shrivel us up because of divided loyalties. I believe that's the message Matthew has for his audience, Jesus had for his day, and that would translate over for us, Faith Bible Church, this church, right here, right now, have faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, lest Jesus shrivel us up because of divided loyalties. And really, you're going to see um, two, two sections in the text this morning, One, in verses 18 through 19, we're going to see Jesus portrays withering judgment on a fruitless generation. 
And then in verses 20 through 22, you're going to see that the Father empowers Jesus' faithful assembly of disciples for his work. So let's start in verses 18 through 19, and let's look at this idea. Jesus portrays withering judgment on a fruitless generation. Look at verse 18. In the morning, or in the early morning, uh, remember what happened in verse 17. Jesus had left the temple, and he had gone out from Jerusalem, from the temple, to Bethany. Bethany is a village on the Mount of Olives, and he stayed the night there. So he, he goes back out to the Mount of Olives. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem for the night. Uh, he stays in Bethany. So uh, then we get the next morning. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. So Jesus becoming hungry is the impetus, the catalyst for what happens next. Jesus is hungry. Uh, And what happens? Verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. Okay, now um, we don't live in first century Palestine, uh, which is essentially the audience of Matthew. Matthew's original audience is first century Jewish Christians and Jews uh, at large in Palestine. Those in Palestine are familiar with fig trees. Uh, We are not, uh, at least the fig trees that grow in Palestine and the seasons that they go through, and that is important background for what's going on here. So what you need to know is there's two types of fig trees in Palestine. One is a sycamore fig tree that kind of bears fruit um, year-round. It pollinates itself. Uh, You can bear multiple crops of figs. The figs aren't as sweet and good, but they are edible. The other type of fig has, comes in a male and female version, and you get fruit. Uh, actually, there's fruit on the male tree and the female tree, but the male uh, fruit is not, is not good. The female tree is very sweet and good fruit. But when you harvest uh, the female common fig, that's what it's called, the female common fig in Palestine, which is probably the fig that Jesus is looking at here, the common fig, you normally harvest this tree around August or September. Okay, now it's Passover time. Passover happens either late March or early to mid-April. Okay, so we're not in the normal season for common figs. However, uh, many of the trees in Palestine, uh, even though they would normally bear their full crop in August and September, you would have an early season for early figs. And that was, a, that was a joyous event. You would be able to have some of that early fruit. It would be good. It would be nice and sweet. And uh, here's the other thing. When the tree is leafed out, when the tree is leafed out, you could reasonably expect to find figs. So this early crop of figs that would sometimes happen, that would happen in usually mid to late April. So we're right at the cusp. Jesus is right at the cusp of the early coming on of figs for the common fig tree. But because he sees a tree that is fully leafed out, it is reasonable to assume that there are at least some figs on it. Even if they're a little green, maybe not as tasty, uh, there is, because it is leafed out, it is reasonable to find figs on it. And so that's what Jesus does. Okay, he's hungry, goes to the fig tree, Uh, Maybe even if they're a little green, he'll have some figs, satisfy his hunger. Now what Jesus, he doesn't. He doesn't, he he comes to it, and he only finds leaves. No fruit whatsoever. Looks like it should have fruit, but it doesn't. Doesn't find any. And then what Jesus does next is very odd. It's very odd. Uh, I mean, let's just be honest about that. There are many odd things in the Bible, and this is one of those odd things. 
Um, so he goes to the tree, it's leafed out, he doesn't find any fruit, um, only leaves, and what does he do? Now, given what you know about Jesus from Matthew, what might you expect he might do? Well, if he's hungry and he wants some figs and he has creative power to produce food, just like he did with the feeding of the 5,000, multiplying loaves, or even if you think about his temptation, the devil said to him, hey, uh, transition these loaves or transition these rocks into loaves of bread because you're hungry. Now, Jesus didn't do that, but he had the ability to do that. The, the devil recognized that. So you might think, well, Jesus is hungry. He's coming up to the street. Well, it doesn't have any natural fruit, but Jesus could just say the word and grow some really good figs and then have breakfast. So Jesus could do that, right? And if he's hungry and that's why he's doing this, that would be, seem reasonable. Um, or maybe even he decides, all right, well, this tree doesn't have any figs. I'm not going to use my power just to, uh, for a selfish need. Um, you know, kind of like in chapter four, the devil's tempting him. Well, you can transition these rocks to bread. Uh, he doesn't do that. Uh, he could, maybe he doesn't uh, grow uh, some figs on this tree. But, you know, he might just walk on. You know, he could walk into Jerusalem. It's not that far. Go to a vendor, get some breakfast, and then go to the temple, right? Um, he could do that even if he doesn't do anything more of the tree. But what does he do? What does he do? After seeing that it has only leaves, what does he do? And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. Well, that's pretty drastic, right? Because what is he doing? He's saying, all right, we've got a, except for no fruit, you've got a healthy fig tree here. And yeah, it's a bummer you didn't find any fruit, but it's not even the normal harvest season. Um, and so why in the world would Jesus destroy this tree for good? Like, that's what he's saying, right? No more fruit, period, forever for this tree. That is an odd thing to do. And it's oddness. Uh, when there's odd things like that in the Bible, it draws our attention. And it gives us a hint that there's more going on here than just Jesus' hunger and a fig tree. He's portraying something else. In fact, this is very much in line with what you see in the prophets in the Old Testament. Guys like Ezekiel or Isaiah, they do some very strange things. Like think of Ezekiel. He's like, um, at one point he has to lay on his side for like many, many months. And he has to like cook his food over um, cow dung. It's just odd, right? It's just, it's just weird. But it's weird for a reason. It's getting the people of God's attention to some other reality that is being portrayed by the weird action. And that is exactly what is going on here. This is what we would call a prophetic sign act. A prophetic sign act. You can kind of think of it as sort of a parable. Uh, you know, it's actually happening. It's an actual fig tree, and uh, Jesus is doing things with it. Uh, but it's a prophetic sign act. Jesus is trying to communicate something through what he has done to this tree. And we need to do some work to figure out what that is. Now, before we go any farther, I will make a note. We must note that Jesus' reaction is not to finding no figs. Not that. Yes, he finds no figs, but that's not the only reason he reacts the way he does. It's not finding figs on a tree that from its foliage signaled that it should have some. So Jesus' reaction is not merely, oh, there's no figs, bummer. It's from a tree that is leafed out, it looks good, and you could reasonably expect some figs on it. There should be some on it, and there's none, and that is what his, precipitates his reaction. 
So how do we interpret this? How do we interpret this prophetic sign act and what Jesus is doing? Well, first place we're going to look is where we normally look in Matthew to get some help, the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So I did uh, a little bit of research. You can do your own if you want. And you can look, if there's not actually that many, you can look for every instance of figs or fig trees in the Old Testament. And you find some very, some very interesting information. Um, I, we won't go there, but I'll just summarize the information for you. First, when you have a fig tree in the Old Testament, it is normally paired with its buddy, the vine. The vine. Now that's, just tuck that away in your brain uh, for the next coming weeks, because Jesus is going to start telling some parables about a vineyard coming up. So uh, what we see in this episode, it's not isolated, it's connected with the things that are going to come. So fig trees are often paired with vines. And normally, uh, you can think of, say, the spies going into the promised land of Israel. Remember, they sent out the spies to, uh, when uh, the Exodus generation came up, they sent out spies to look out the land, and they bring some fruit back. Well, you always think of the big cluster of grapes they bring back, but it also mentions they got figs, too. And so what tends to happen because of this is that fig trees get paired with vines to talk about the fruitfulness of the promised land to Abraham. Okay, so that tends to happen. So you can even think of something like uh, what happens in Solomon's reign. You hear this uh, refrain of sitting under one's own vine and fig tree. What is that symbolizing? Well, it's symbolizing, yes, the fruit that is in the land, but it's also symbolizing abundance and security for Israel that was promised through the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the imagery of vine and fig tree. And then, what, um, if, if abundance and security in the land, when does that happen? It happens when God's people are being obedient. They're being blessed by God. Well, if they're disobedient, what happens? The exact opposite. And so, what you also see in the prophets is that withering of vines and fig trees is associated with judgment, with God's punishment of his people and taking them into exile. For, so, for example, this happens in multiple places, but one instance is Jeremiah 8.13. You don't have to turn there. But in Jeremiah 8.13, God is saying to a generation of Judah who is corrupt. Remember, we looked at Jeremiah 7 last week. They're treating the temple very much in the way that Jesus' generation is. And God says, judgment is coming. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to crush your nation. They're going to take away the temple. And part of that whole package of description of judgment in Jeremiah 8.13, it talks about the withering of fig trees. Now, that's the tree itself. What about figs? Figs normally, in the Old Testament imagery, indicate some, they, they normally indicate people. So you could look at a place like Jeremiah 24. It talks about some uh, collection of Israelites being called figs. Uh, and also, even more interestingly, in Hosea 9.10, you see an example where God talks about the Exodus generation that Moses came out with, and he talks about finding them like he found early ripened figs. And what is he saying? He's saying, like, I, uh, God found, he, the, the, the Exodus generation had this great promise, uh, and so he likens it to early ripened figs. One other piece of data, trees, trees themselves in the Old Testament often indicate a ruler uh, or, and, and or the kingdom ruled. In fact, if you look at Judges 9.10, you will find a fig tree being solicited to rule. Or you can think about a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. He's likened to a great tree uh, that eventually gets cut down, but trees normally signify leadership and, uh, and or a kingdom. 
So that's some, that's some info, that's some data we get from the Old Testament. But that's not all. Because in Matthew, trees and fruit have also played a very prominent role. Uh, if you were to go back to Matthew 3, go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. Matthew 3 is when we get introduced to John the Baptist, who is the herald of the king. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Remember his message. He's talking to the nation. He's talking to the nation. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Okay, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And so he's calling for repentance for the whole nation. But look down at verse 7, what happens? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. So you've got a contingent of religious leadership, the shepherds of Israel coming to John when he's proclaiming this message. Saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what is John saying? John's saying, if you repent, what is repentance? Repentance is fundamentally allegiance change. It's changing your allegiance from sin and self. It's changing your loyalties from yourself to God and specifically listening to John's message, to Jesus' message, to trusting the Messiah and God's work through the Messiah. But if you truly have an allegiance change, that's going to demonstrate itself in good works. It's going to demonstrate itself in fruits worthy that are aligned with true repentance. And Jesus says the same thing. He uses similar imagery in Matthew 6 to talk about how do you identify false teachers? How do you identify false leaders? You look at their fruits. And then he applies that in Matthew 12, 33 through 37, to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. Why? Because the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, by and large, in Israel of his day, are false shepherds, bad shepherds. They are all outward show, but no devotion. They are all leaf with no fruit. They're all religiosity, all external piety, all outward show with no substance. And Jesus says as much in Matthew 15. Look at Matthew 15, just as a summary of how he considers the leadership. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Play actors. That's what hypocrite means. You play actors. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the temple leadership, by and large, not every single individual, but by and large, they are corrupt. 
They are all show. They are all leaf and no fruit. And so think now, going back to Matthew 21, what has just happened? Right before Jesus curses the fig tree, he's gone to the temple, the epicenter of leadership, the beating heart of what should be Israel's life and worship and devotion to God. And he has said both, both leaders, primarily leaders, and also worshipers are corrupt. You're all outward show and no substance. You see, not only were the leaders, not only were the leaders and shepherds of Israel all show and no substance, but because they are leading the people, Jesus calls them blind guides of the blind. So now not only are the leaders all show and no substance, but also the people who are being led are all show and no substance as well. So taking all that information, the information from the imagery from the Old Testament, what we see in Matthew, what does the fig tree represent? It represents that wicked and adulterous generation of Israel. That's what Jesus has been calling the whole generation, not just the leadership, although they earn the lion's share of Jesus' ire and judgment and rebuke, but the people as a whole. It's the whole wicked and adulterous generation. That's what the fig tree represents. Now, if you were to think about it and parse it out a little bit more, you could think of um, the tree itself probably represents the leaders and the figs that Jesus is looking for is the fruit of changed lives. Lives that, bear fruit, that are fruitful in keeping with repentance. You see, good leadership, good leadership should nourish those under it, those whom it's entrusted to care for, nourish those so that they live fruitful lives. So not only should the scribes and Pharisees and um, uh, chief priests, they should be living fruitful lives, lives worthy of repentance, but they should also be nourishing the people whom they are shepherding to live lives of fruit and keeping, fruitful lives in keeping with repentance. So then what is Jesus indicating? Yes, he's hungry. I mean, he's literally hungry and he goes to the tree, but he's symbolizing something. He's saying this generation is done. Judgment is coming on this um, wicked and adulterous generation of Israel. He's not saying, now don't mishear me, he is not saying Israel is done. He's saying that wicked and adulterous generation that has rejected its Messiah is done. Judgment is coming. Shriveling judgment. It will not have the kingdom. It will not bear fruit as a nation again. It's over. And it has been over for quite some time. It's basically been over since chapter 12 in Matthew. But now in the epicenter of the life of Israel and the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is portraying this. Now, why does, why does Matthew include this? We've got to think about that, because what is Matthew doing for his original audience? Well, who's Matthew's original audience? His, Matthew's original audience is Jewish Christians who are probably still living in Palestine. And those Jewish Christians, like we've said many times throughout our study in Matthew, uh, they, now have, they believe in the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is king, but now they're having to separate from their friends and their neighbors and their family who do not hold to Jesus being the Messiah. And they're eventually going to have to separate from the temple, the beating heart of worship in Israel. 
How are they going to do that? Well, Matthew's audience need to see, well, Jesus has pronounced, Jesus the king, the king of Israel, the son of David, has pronounced judgment on the temple, on the whole, that whole generation of Israel. Obviously, there's individuals like the disciples who have come to believe in Jesus, but as a whole, that generation of Israel is done. Judgment is coming. Now, as we think about that, and as we think about how do we apply that, how do we transition from what was Matthew was doing with his original audience to us, well, the same principle holds for the church. You see, Jesus is not mocked. He can see when we're all leaves and no fruit, when we are all profession and show with no substance. If you don't have fruit, if you don't have works that show that you've been transformed, you're not going to be saved. Now, you, some of you, uh, as soon as I said that, are just like your radars went up, right? Because am I saying that we're saved by good works? Absolutely not. We see in Matthew that only repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross as substitution for his people and his righteous life lived in place of those like you and me that couldn't live a righteous life. Only based on that alone is anyone justified in God's eyes. But the kind of salvation that Jesus brings is not merely one of position. In other words, if we think of the courtroom scene, which is how we normally think of justification, right? Being justified in God's eyes. I am justified by um, grace through faith alone, dependent on Jesus' work alone. However, Jesus changes your life as well. He justifies you in the courtroom, and then he changes your whole life. If you are his, if you are brought into union with him, then your life must change. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to them because that is who Jesus is calling us to be based on his work alone. And then he transforms our whole life. Jesus not only saves his people by giving them a righteous standing before his father, but in fact transforms them so that they act righteously, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So the question is, is there fruit in your life born out of love and loyalty to Jesus Christ? Is there fruit? Now, if so, now here's the thing. We understand we are works in progress. For any who are in Christ this morning, we are still sinners, and we still do not perfectly display the fruitfulness that we ought to. And yet, if there is fruit in your life, and you can say, yeah, well, it's not perfect, but yeah, God is at work. And what you do when you see that fruit, you don't puff yourself up and say, well, look what I produced. You say, no, you rejoice in the power of Jesus through his spirit that has produced that fruit in you. Or maybe you look at your life and it's like, well, I kind of look the same. I kind of look the same as those around me. I kind of look the same as the rest of the world. Um, Then friend, you better beware. Because you may have a good profession, you may know all the right answers, you may be totally leafed out, but if there's no change, then Jesus knows, and judgment, a shriveling judgment for pretenders will come. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because there's no true life change. Because any who are brought to salvation in Jesus Christ, their life changes. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, well, um, and, and I've been in this category in times in my life. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to see fruit. I don't know. Then what's the solution? The fr- solution is, well, I better start doing more good stuff. If I do more good stuff, then God's going to be pleased with me. That is legalism. What is the solution? Loyalty and love for Jesus Christ. Because that's what Matthew has been doing in his gospel. That's what he's been doing for his Jewish audience. Look at the glories of Jesus Christ. Look at his tenderness and his toughness. Look at his grace and his harshness. All of it bundled together in one glorious person, the God-man Jesus Christ. So the solution this morning, whether you see growth or whether you do not, the solution is seeing the glories of Jesus repenting, bowing the knee, entrusting yourself to him so that he transforms your life as you strive for growth. We strive for growth. We pursue good works, always dependent on the power of Jesus Christ through the Spirit to transform us. But that's an individual application. That's an individual application. There is also a corporate application for this. Because notice Jesus is condemning that evil and adulterous generation as a whole. And the question then corporately is this, are we bearing fruit as a people, as a local church? Because like we saw, like we talked about last week, Jesus went to the temple, which was the beating heart of worship to God. And I said, there's always been a temple and there's a temple in this era and the temple is the local church. If you look at Revelation 2 through 3, you will see Jesus portrayed as the high priest. And what are his lampstands? His lampstands in the temple are the churches to display God's glory, to display his glory in the world. And you will notice when he talks to those seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3, he's looking for fruit. He's looking for fruit. He warns them as a collective body to wake up and repent and do the works that they did at first, lest he remove their lampstand. So the message from Matthew, the message of Jesus to his generation, it transfers over to the church. Are we fruitful? Are we all show and no substance? Or are we working together as a team, as members of this local church to be fruitful? Fruitful in evangelism, fruitful in growth and holiness, We must strive together in faith for what Jesus would have us do as a church, lest even, and Jesus says this in Revelation 2 through 3, if we are not fruitful as a church, he will take us away. He will shrivel us up as a church, we will die, and it'll be over. And Jesus says that in Revelation 2 through 3. But praise God, there are signs of fruitfulness in this church. You love one another. You serve one another. You are working at killing sin. Yes, we need to grow in evangelism. Yes, we need to grow in a culture of discipleship. Yes, we need to grow in many things, but there is signs of growth. So the call to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is let's excel still more. Let's work together, not merely individually, but together for fruitfulness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to please our great king. There's a little bit more we can draw out of this. Um, it's amazing. I know we have two verses and all of this is coming out of it, but who does Jesus blame for the fruitlessness of that wicked and adulterous generation? He, the lion's share of blame goes to the leadership. 
the lion's share of blame goes to the leadership, to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, because a people will not rise above their leadership. That's what leadership, like I said, is supposed to do. Leadership is supposed to um, pursue genuine, loyal worship to Jesus and then to nourish, to nourish others so that they also grow and bear fruit in their lives. This is what we're aiming at as elders of Faith Bible Church. Everything we do, we are striving, whether it's preaching on Sunday morning, equipping hour on Sunday morning, doing growth groups, um, counseling individually, um, visiting, whatever that looks like, we are seeking to nourish the members of this church for fruitfulness. But it's not just the elders of this church, it's men, all the men in this room. You have a leadership responsibility. First, I would speak to husbands and to fathers. You have a leadership responsibility to your family to nourish your child in the training and admonition of Jesus. And if you do not, Jesus will hold you accountable for that. Of course, there is the work of each individual heart by the Spirit of God, but are you being faithful? Are you trying to create the atmosphere in such a way that your children will rise up and follow? And along with this, Men, aspire to leadership. Aspire to leadership in the local church to serve and to nourish others towards Christ and good works. So what we've seen in verses 18 through 19 is that Jesus portrays withering judgment on a fruitless generation. In verses 20 through 22, we see the positive side of all of this. The Father empowers Jesus' faithful assembly of disciples for his work. The Father empowers Jesus' faithful assembly of disciples for his work. Look at verse 20. So everything so far has been Jesus. Jesus has looked for the fig tree. He's found the fig tree. Uh, he's withered the fig tree. But now we switch focus. The camera angle includes now the disciples. So verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Now, uh, they're not asking really a question here. This is an expression of exclamation. The text says that. So really, you could translate it like this. How the fig tree has withered so quickly. Like, it just happened fast. This is unexpected. Uh, now, in Mark, if you were to look over at Mark, you would find out that the cursing was on one day, and then the withering, or the seeing of the withering, happened on this other day. So Matthew just compresses it into one episode. But it's quick. It's quick. And they're astounded. So it's not so much that they're asking a question, they're astounded, okay, at seeing this fig tree being withered. Now, what does Jesus do with this? Verse 21, and Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, which is Jesus' signal that's saying, hey, listen up, I'm about to tell you something really important. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, one thing we need to deal with right out the get-go is the word that is usually translated, it's probably translated in all your English translation as doubt, is not the word doubt. Scholars have agreed at this point that this is not the word doubt, this is like the word divided. So what Jesus is saying here is, if you have faith and are not divided, 
Now, what does that mean? It's like, okay, the word means that, but what does that even mean to be divided? Well, given the context and what we've already talked about this morning, I believe he's talking about divided loyalty. Because that's the issue. That was the issue in the temple that he just cleansed. That's been the issue with the religious leadership throughout, divided loyalty. As an example of divided loyalty, you can go to Matthew 6, and Jesus is talking about the hypocrites who go and pray on the street corners. Why does he call them play actors if they're going to the street corners? Well, ostensibly, what they're doing is for God. They're pursuing God, but what are they really doing? They're doing it to be seen by others. That, my friends, is divided loyalty. If your loyalty is truly towards God and only towards God, then it's not about what people see in you. It's about what God sees in you. So what is he telling his disciples? He's saying, if you have faith. Now, let's remind ourselves, what is biblical faith? It's a word we throw around so much. I mean, it's core to who we are as Christians, but what does faith mean? And what does Matthew mean by faith? And we've seen examples in Matthew of great faith. Remember the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15? Remember her? She's the example. She's the woman of great faith in Matthew. She's the one that uh, seems like she has the greatest faith in all of Matthew. Why? Because what faith is, what biblical faith is, is not mental assent, merely. You need to believe facts, that's true, but it's not merely mental assent. Nor is a faith of self-confidence. No, you know, when we think about faith, we often think about it like, well, I just need to believe more. I just need to have a little more confidence. Uh, a professor that uh, I'm familiar with, he, he likened it like this. He used this analogy. It's like the faith toothpaste tube. You know, when you've got that little bit, tiny bit of toothpaste less in your toothpaste tube, what do you do? Just a little bit more. That's not faith. That's self-confidence. What is biblical faith? Well, what did the woman, the Canaanite woman do? She knew who Jesus was. He was the son of David, the king of Israel. And what did she do? Because she knew the son of David, because she knew Jesus' identity, she lived like it. Because she knew that the son of David was trustworthy, she persistently pursued, have mercy on me, son of David. And even when Jesus seems to be putting her off, she keeps coming and keeps coming. Why? Because she knows who the son of David is. That's biblical faith. Biblical faith does not look to itself at all. It looks external to itself, to the person of Jesus, to the person of the Father, to the person of the Holy Spirit, and trusts them, trusts him for everything. And so what is Jesus telling the disciples here? Unlike the religious leaders, unlike that wicked and adulterous generation, if you have faith, loyalty to me, and are not divided, then what? Then what? Truly I say to you, if you have faith and are not divided, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree. Well, Jesus just did what was done to the fig tree. So what is Jesus doing? He's transferring his authority and his power to his disciples, which is amazing. But he says, you're not only going to do that, but even if you should say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, you might look at that and scratch your head and it's like, what? Okay, that's amazing to say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into a sea, and that uh, language of being thrown into a sea, that's the language of destruction. So it's not just that we're saying, like he said in Matthew 17, be taken up and moved. He already said something like this in chapter 17. He said, 
If you have faith, um, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and moved. Well, now the mountain's getting destroyed because being thrown to the sea is a symbol of destruction. But why would you do that? Why would you want to destroy a mountain? Well, it's not just any mountain. It's this mountain. Well, which mountain is he talking about? Where are they at? There's two options. They're on the Mount of Olives, right, which has been called a mountain. They're on the Mount of Olives. But there's another option. Because from the Mount of Olives, you can see Mount Moriah, otherwise known as the Temple Mount. And I believe that, it, that the Temple Mount is the mountain that Jesus is referring to. He's standing on the Mount of Olives, pointing to the Temple Mount and saying, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. What is he saying? The temple's going to be destroyed. But not only is he saying that, he's transferring authority and leadership to the disciples. Based on what? Faith? Loyalty to the Messiah, to the Son of David? Not being divided in loyalty? And so the negative side is, yeah, this generation of Israel is going to be judged. The temple's going to be judged. But then there's the positive side in verse 22. And whatever you ask, let me give it to you a little more literally. And all things, as many you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, is that a blank check for any and every request that a disciple might have? Absolutely not. Because how does Jesus qualify this? All things, as many as you ask in prayer. Well, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, didn't he? Matthew 6. What are prayers supposed to look like? Our Father in heaven, may your name be treated as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's how Jesus' disciples are supposed to pray. Well, how is that prayer oriented? towards God and his kingdom and his glory. It's not a blank check for a Ferrari or a nice house. It is true, loyal, believing. That's why he adds that qualification in verse 22, believing. Believing what? It's not the self-confidence toothpaste tube. Oh, I didn't believe enough, so I didn't get what I wanted. No. Belief is looking to who God is, to who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, to looking to who Jesus is, his mission, and saying, I am totally loyal to you, King Jesus, and I will live for you, and I will ask for your will to be done, your mission to happen in the world. And if you're praying like that with undivided loyalty, if your orientation in prayer is, I want to see God's kingdom. I want to see Jesus' advancement in the world. I'm, um, it's not about my desires. It's about God's desires. Then the Father will back that prayer. The destruction of the mountain and the answer of prayer here is a signal that unlike the temple, which is about to be judged, there's a transfer happening where now God is going to back the disciple community. Because what Jesus has been saying since chapter 16, when Peter confessed him to be the Christ, is he says, as the Davidic king, as the temple builder, I will build my assembly. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to build a temple and I'm going to build it out of people. And it's going to be the new covenant community, the disciple community, what we call the church. 
and he's saying here in this little episode, transfer, judgment is happening to this wicked generation and to the temple, but transfer is happening to the leadership, to the temple of the church, manifested in its local forms eventually all over the world. And if you ask for the furtherance of Jesus' mission, for God's glory through the temple of the local church, father's gonna ask, the Father's going to answer. He's going to back it. He's going to back it. So what do we learn from this? Well, it bears repeating again and again and again. Faith is not merely mental assent. What is faith? It is undivided loyalty to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is repentance and entrusting oneself with all of who you are to Jesus Christ. First, to save you from your sin, and then to empower you through His Spirit for fruitfulness. And this is, this is such good news. The Father is backing the disciples of Jesus in His church. This church, Faith Bible Church, as long as we are have faith, a loyal faith in Jesus Christ, as long as we are not divided in our loyalties, we are backed by the God of heaven. We are backed by the authority of Jesus. We are backed by the authority of the Father, and we pray to that end. We come to know Jesus, and then he puts us to work, and he empowers us by his Spirit to advance his mission We pray in single-hearted loyalty for things to happen that are in line with Jesus' mission in the world, and we get to see God answer. That is the core of biblical prayer. The core of biblical prayer in, from Genesis to Revelation, is calling on God to do what he has promised to do. It looks at where God is going in the world, where Jesus is going in the world, where the Spirit is going in the world, and we say, all right, I want to align myself with that, and I want to act in accordance with that, and so we pray to that end. Yes, prayer, we can, ask, we, can, we can ask things for ourselves, but that's not the core of biblical prayer. Prayer is not focused on ourselves, on our desires, but on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their desires. And when we are focused on that, we will see this promise come true of God answering for his own glory, and we will be joyful. As we see the Father answer for his own glory, we have joy that the Father is advancing the mission of the Son through the power of the Spirit, and we get to be caught up right in the middle of it, and that is just joyful. And so we pray. This is why we devote uh, time in the evenings to pray. Pray not just for sickness, and we do pray for that. That's a good thing to pray for, but we pray for the mission of God in the world, We pray for the advancement of more churches. We pray for our own church to grow in health, all of these, and spiritual health and fruitfulness. We set aside time in the Sunday evenings. We set aside time in our corporate gathering. We pray at our small groups because we understand and we want to see God work. We don't pray. God's, he might work in spite of us, but we don't get any joy if we do not pray. And so we pray. We pray with undivided loyalty to the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So what's the total message of this passage this morning? We said it at the beginning, Faith Bible Church, have faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, lest Jesus shrivel us up because of divided loyalties. Let's ask as a church for fruitfulness. Let's work together and strive, dependent on the power of the Spirit, 
so that our great God and Savior, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may your name be treated as holy in this church. May we proclaim your holy name in the world. And may your kingdom come. May you send Jesus again to reign on a throne on Jerusalem over Israel and all the world. And may we be faithful in proclaiming the gospel that you might sweep up more kingdom citizens for your great name's sake. May we do your will as it's being done in heaven, also upon earth. Help us to be faithful in our families, as workers, as proclaimers of the gospel, faithful servants to one another in this church, faithful lovers of one another, faithful proclaimers of the truth, faithful um, in all sorts of ways that you would command us. Help us, O Lord. Give us what we need each and every day to aim at your kingdom, to fulfill your will, Forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive one another. Lord, forgive us when we are bitter at one another, harboring resentment towards one another. Forgive us when we are not forgiving one another because you have forgiven us so magnificently. Lead us not into temptation as a church. Deliver us from the evil one who would want to destroy us, who would want to shrivel us up. May we be a fruitful people May you make us a fruitful people, not for ourselves, not for our own pride, no, but for your honor and glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.